Welcome to the Womensy News Indigenous Women Speak Out series, a series that tells of the origin of work and lives of female leaders of Indigenous and First Nation communities in both the U.S. and Canada to spread light on their call for environmental advocacy, cultural preservation, and improving health and human services. These women have a uniquely valued place in indigenous cultures that can help raise respect for women's special wisdom throughout the world. Join us. Hello everyone, my name is Mary Kim Titla. I'm a member of the San Carlos Apache tribe located in Arizona. I'm so happy to be joining you with what I think will be a very impactful and meaningful conversation. I am so happy to have Kylie Hunts in winter here with us and her passion at 18 years old is the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Movement. And Kylie is going to talk about herself a little bit, but we have some alarming statistics that we want to share. And this conversation is really about bringing awareness to this issue and making sure that people have a way to get involved. So a call to action, if you will. Just a few statistics first before we meet Kylie. Four out of five of Native American women are affected by violence today. The U.S. Department of Justice found that American Indian women face murder rates that are more than 10 times the national average. Homicide is the third leading cause of death among 10 to 24 years of age and the fifth leading cause of death for American Indian and Alaska Native women between 25 and 34 years of age. And this is from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Homicide. This is on the website for the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. So you can go to that website, csvanw.org. Kylie, welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, Hello, my name is Kylie, Brave Woman Hunsa Winner. My family is of the Standing Rock Sioux, Dakota, and Lakota people. I live here in Tempe, Arizona. And as Mary Kim was saying, I'm an advocate with the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Movement. I've grown up in my Indigenous community throughout my life. It's been very important to me that I carry on my culture and also support my people. So when I learned about how prevalent this issue is within our community, I knew that I had to do something about it. I've been training in martial arts since I was three years old. I use my expertise in martial arts to teach self-defense classes, as well as I'm just a huge political and human rights advocate. And I love how all of this works together and also the impact that I'm able to make um, for my people. Well, you amazed me. And I am super proud of all of your, not only activism, but just how you give back to the community. And I know you're very humble about this, but I do want to brag on you a little bit because you were named recently to the 25 under 25 outstanding Native leaders. And this is an honor that was bestowed upon you by United National Indian Tribal Youth, also known as UNITY. And I'm happy to say that I serve as the executive director for UNITY. So congratulations on that honor. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was a great honor. I, it meant so much. So regarding your background, thank you for introducing yourself. And 
I would like to hear a little bit more about your tribal affiliation and your uh, descendant of some chiefs. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, definitely. So like I said, my family is from the Standing Rock Sioux people of the Dakota and Lakota tribe. So my grandmother grew up on the reservation. I've lived here in Arizona pretty much my entire life, but I've, like I said, I've always been involved in my culture and the local communities. So my grandmother moved here um, in her adulthood, but she grew up there. I have tons of family out on the reservation that I go to visit whenever I can. I had my womanhood ceremony as a baby when I was named Bray Woman, actually after my third great grandmother, who was a woman warrior. The medicine man gave me that name. And I've always stayed close to my culture. And also, as you mentioned, I do have hereditary chieftainship in my family ancestry. So it goes back to my grandfather, who my last name comes from. It was uh, my grandfather, Hudson Winter was his native name given to him. I'd like to really dive into this issue that you're so passionate about, the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls movement. And I know that there are groups who include the Two-Spirit as well. So we'll talk about that. And we just had a recent date, May 5th, where this awareness was very prominent. And I know you participated in some activities. Can you tell us why you're so passionate about this issue? Yeah, definitely. So like I said, the thing that actually got me started was because I heard about the issue from somebody named Suda Calling last was where obviously I knew that it was somewhere there, but I didn't realize the gravity of it. And when I heard about how big this movement is and about how much our Indigenous people are affected, I knew that I had to do something. So that is actually where my self-defense classes started. Working with Indigenous Vision is where we started teaching classes at high schools, teaching classes. I went to a summer camp. I traveled to Georgia with her. And those were the first people that I worked with on my classes because growing up in martial arts, I was always wanting to give back to my community, giving back to my people. Personally, I saw a struggle as a woman, even just in the martial arts community, in a sport that's dominated by men. And with my Indigenous women, I saw something that I could share with them that not a lot of people have the opportunity to. Indigenous people are one of the major reasons that this is such an issue is because they are underserved. They have less resources. They don't have the same access, especially to something like self-defense, which is already something that so many people need, especially our Indigenous women. So I teach free self-defense classes now. Uh, My most recent ones has been with the Phoenix Indian Center. I had a a three-class series this year where I taught self-defense classes online And I was able to help our Indigenous women while also staying safe within the pandemic. This May 5th, my last class was on May 4th, which was the day before Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Awareness Day. And I was able to teach my last class, at least in that series, right before it. And this meant so much to me because MMIW Day is something that is so important because we need to bring awareness not only within our indigenous communities, but also with everybody out there. Because although this is an indigenous issue, we have to have a joint effort in creating solutions and working together. Let's talk about your martial arts and your exposure to this amazing area of self-defense. So you have been involved in tournaments since you were a very young girl. And we have to give your parents, I guess, some credit for that because, you know, they got you started. And I know that a lot of self-defense, there's a mental side of it as well as the physical. So can you talk about that? Yeah, definitely. So like I said, I started training in martial arts when I was three years old. Today, I now have experience in Kempo Karate, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Judo, Muay Thai kickboxing, wrestling, MMA, and weapons. 
So that is a lot of different styles of martial arts, but I work them all together in the most efficient way for my self-defense classes, especially. I teach really basic movements, things that anybody can do, things such as random wrist grabs, such as bear hugs, because when somebody attacks you, obviously the first thing they have to do is take you away. And that's usually the first thing that I teach to somebody. And Within my classes, though, it's not only about the physical aspect, but it's also about your mental state. Not only your mental state when you're fighting, but your mental state when you're keeping yourself safe all the time. As in self-defense, what I've learned and what you hear in most things, actually, is the basics is what matters. And the same thing goes not just for when you're fighting someone or when you have to kick somebody away, but is when you have to go through your day-to-day life and being aware of your surroundings. When you're walking around knowing what a possible threat is, staying around people that you trust and people you can be safe around as much as you can. Because if you are in that positive mental state, but also an aware mental state, you will be much more prepared to defend yourself. And I know it's also quite difficult to learn something in one class. You know, somebody will attend a class and I teach five or six different techniques and it's kind of difficult to retain them. But if you've seen it one time, if you are mentally prepared and if you are keeping yourself ready, it is much easier to go into that state of self-defense and hopefully you have a better chance. So really be aware of your surroundings. Yeah. Really keep an eye on activity around you, really, when you're maybe just walking in and out of a building. And it could even be in broad daylight, I'm sure. So really some good advice. Thank you. Let's talk about your advocacy again. And I know we've been talking about martial arts. And I'd like to bring the Brave Woman Instagram page into this discussion because that's a big part of your advocacy and bringing awareness Uh, not only to this issue, but to just um, self-defense in general. When did you create the Instagram page? And can you tell us what you've been hearing in terms of feedback? Yeah, definitely. So um, my Brave Woman page actually started as a website. I believe it was 2015. I The first thing that I ever did for my page was I actually interviewed my first ever instructor who was a woman. Her name is Jeanette Richter. So when I was three years old, the first person who ever taught me, I interviewed her and I asked her about her experience within martial arts as a woman and also how she was able to stay strong. And I talked about how she helped me. And that was the first thing I ever did with my page. From then on, I extended to Facebook and I remember thinking, wow, I got a thousand likes on Facebook. That's so cool. Like I was getting support. And then I started my Instagram page in uh, 2016, I think it was. And from then on, my page exploded. My content today and really ever since then is about sharing the stories of girls in martial arts. Starting from such a young age, I saw what it was like to not have that role model there. Or even though there were a few women by my side, there weren't that many. And I didn't know how to look who to look up to, especially people closer to my age. Most of them were much older than me. So I wanted to be that for somebody else. And also, at first, I wanted to see that for myself, to have somebody to look up to but also to share the stories of others. Today, I now have over 57,000 followers on my page. I share stories from girls from all around the world. I have heard so many things. I have heard stories of a black belt woman who has no arms. I've heard stories of somebody who started teaching self-defense to women out in the Middle East where they were not allowed to practice it. I had one project where I was trying to contact people from all over the world to hear their stories from as many countries as I possibly could. And that's where I heard a lot of these ones. But daily, I get messages of girls saying, thank you for sharing my content. Thank you for empowering me. Because when I grew up, I didn't see those role models out there for me, especially as a young girl. And I think if I even helped one girl in some way, that it was all worth it. 
Yes. And let's just talk about uh, a little bit in terms of the Native American communities that exist in the United States. And this is primarily just a little bit of trivia because there may be people listening and watching who may not realize how many tribes there are in the United States. Currently, there's 574 federally recognized tribes. Now, there's also state-recognized tribes, and among them are 63 that are state-recognized. And so if you add those together, you're talking about a lot of tribal groups in the United States. Some of them have large land bases, like my tribe, the San Carlos Apache. There's a large land base, uh, almost 2 million acres. And then there are other tribes where they have, you know, very few acres. In fact, I know one in California that has only seven acres of land and others who are trying to reclaim their tribal lands. So there's quite a few. And of course, there could, would have been more, but we know what happened with the European and encroachment and colonization and historical trauma tied to that. And I think touching upon the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls movement, there are perpetrators um, in these tribal lands. Some uh, are not Native. Uh, I've learned by reading uh, and, and doing some research that Many years ago, there were efforts to, you know, bring legislation that will help tribal governments have that authority and and jurisdiction to convict those who are not Native. Because in the past, uh, it was very easy for um, non-Native perpetrators to get away with crime uh, against women, especially. So that's changing. So that's a very good thing. What other efforts are there that you're aware of? Yeah. So when you bring up tribal sovereignty and also land rights, that is a huge topic, not only just in in indigenous communities in general, but especially with MMIW. One of the major contributors, like you said, is jurisdiction. I actually attend the East Valley Institute of Technology where I'm in their criminal justice program. And every Thursday we have a guest speaker come in and we had a guest speaker come in who was the assistant attorney general for a reservation. I believe it was the Navajo Nation, but I could be wrong. So don't fully quote me on that, but she was an assistant attorney general. And she talked about the jurisdiction issues within crime on the reservations. And a, but one of the things that she has noticed that that is a pattern and as a huge contributing factor with all crimes and especially MMIW is the people who are non-natives that come onto the reservation and commit a crime. Because when you come onto the reservation and you are not a member of a tribe, then you are under federal jurisdiction. However, there are many, many times where the federal government decides not to pursue charges on a case, whether that be because of evidence, whether it be because of resources or whatever the reasoning is, there are too many times where the federal government is not charging these non-Indigenous people. And when they're not charged by the federal government, reservations don't have the jurisdiction to charge them and they are getting away with crimes committed with no consequences whatsoever. And even when it is an Indigenous person committing a crime, if it is an Indigenous on Indigenous or any other situation, if the federal government is not pressing charges, I heard that it was only a two-year maximum of sentencing. That means that if there is no federal charges and it is only tribal, that somebody could commit a murder and only be in prison for two years. It also depends on the reservation, but that was at least one example there. When it comes to MMIW, this is not only an issue on federal 
processing on federal jurisdictions giving charges. It is also an issue of communications where we have these cities that are nearby the reservations that are not properly communicating with the tribes nearby, where if you have somebody who commits a crime in one place and travels onto the reservation or off of the reservation either way, we have people who are dangerous, who are getting away from the crime because we are not having proper communications. Within our tribes, one example also with tribal jurisdiction and with the lands is actually with the pipelines. When they make man camps, that is actually a huge contributor to MMIW. Man camps that are made near the reservation have statistically shown to increase the violence, to increase the amount of assaults and the amount of our indigenous women who are being hurt or being murdered and going missing. So there is a direct connection there. And I think that is something that needs to be more addressed. Absolutely. So thank you for sharing that. There's, gosh, so many directions that I think that we can go and jurisdiction being one of them. As I mentioned, you know, federal law is not only changing, but being challenged so that tribal governments and uh, tribal law enforcement can have more authority and jurisdiction over non-natives. But we do know that perpetrators can be native as well. And they're not happening only on Indian reservations, but they're happening in urban settings. So, which is where you live. You live in an urban setting and more and more people are moving to urban settings due to employment. Some people may not realize that, you know, there's there's huge urban native populations in the United States in metro areas like Phoenix, like Los Angeles, Chicago, many Native Americans moved long ago in the 1960s during the Relocation Act. My parents were among those where my father was uh, asked to relocate to Dallas, Texas, uh, so that he can be trained in a vocational school and, and get employment there. A lot of families, however, did return to Indian reservations, including my family. So I was fortunate enough to grow up on the reservation, but I did spend a couple of years in the Dallas, Texas area. I want to, you know, just commend you for all the work that you've been doing. There's so much more work to be done. I know that when you talk about advocacy, there's use of social media, of course, but you're, you take it to a whole new level. And I have to segue now into something that's going to happen later this year. And that's your involvement with a side event for you, the United Nations. And so can you tell me about that? Yeah, definitely. So I've had the great honor to actually work with a known actress, Mira Sorvino. She was a huge voice within the Me Too movement, and she's helped me get in with a context with the United Nations. So I've worked with her as well as a few other people where we are in talks of creating an event within them to talk about MMIW specifically. They do have a group that works on Indigenous issues globally. But I think that MMIW needs to be a specific focus that we are talking about because we have many movements within the United States as well as there's a lot happening in Canada. But this is also a global issue. Indigenous people does not only mean the native peoples of America, but this also means the people all around the globe. This means the aboriginals. This means the people of South America. People all over the globe are having this sort of issue as well. There are many underserved countries that are not helping their indigenous people even nearly as much as we are. And working with the United Nations, this needs 
to be a top priority where we can talk about the solutions and bring our minds together. Because although there are people like me and you who are vocal about this issue, if we don't have the top leaders coming together and creating solutions, nothing's going to get done. Because the number one thing that needs to happen here is unity, coming together, not only within Indigenous people, but people of all kinds, people from all over the world, so that we can create a more positive impact here. Thank you for that. Now, if people want to tune into that, should they be getting the information through your Instagram page or how can they find out more? Yeah, definitely. Currently, I am still in talks of the planning stage, but I'm hoping to have it happening around Indigenous Peoples Day um, this coming year in October. So if anything is set in stone, I will definitely be posting it on my Instagram. Again, my Instagram page is called Brave Woman. And if anybody wants to check it out, whenever I have a day, whenever I have a time, I will definitely share it. If you want to keep up with anything that I'm doing with the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Movement, I do post it on my Instagram. Although it is my martial arts page, I do post also what I am keeping up with and my activism stuff. Excellent. Now, if people want to get involved, what do you recommend? How can they help with bringing more awareness to this movement and get involved? Obviously, the first thing I say is talk about it. Keep people aware because when I talk to somebody not in the Indigenous community, it is very, very rare that anybody has even heard of this. If you take, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement, the reason it was so powerful is because everybody came together. It created a sense of unity and a sense of strength. And I think we need to have the same thing happening here where people need to recognize the struggles of our Indigenous people here, but also creating strength out of it. If you want to be a positive impact on this movement, be vocal about it, talk to your friends about it, talk to your family about it, but also find out what is happening with your local governments and your local communities. If you live somewhere near a reservation, find if there's a way that you can volunteer, if there's a way that you can get in contact with your legislators about MMIW. I know in Arizona, we have a very strong presence of strong legislators, representatives, and senators where we are pushing forward, we are getting more statistics, we have a task force, and I think that is amazing. But we also don't have that happening everywhere. So if you notice that there is a lack of this in your community, reach out to your governments and please find out what you can do to support. I guarantee you there's somebody nearby who knows about it and can help guide you. I think you're amazing. I'm one of your fans and I wish you all the very best. Keep moving forward, staying focused, And I uh, pray that you will reach your goals. I have no doubt with your support group and with your commitment that you're going to get to where you want to be someday. So I'll be looking for your name on future ballots. And (laughs) I really think that that we're going to see your name on a ballot, honestly. But uh, whatever it is that you decide to do, I wish you well. So thank you for all that you do for Indigenous people. And just thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. Thank you so much for having me to share my message and share my passion. I am so thankful that you invited me here. It's been amazing talking to you, Mary Kim. And uh, thank you also so much. Like I said, as being a 2525, it has actually led me into a lot of the things that I'm doing today, for example, with the Indigenous Peoples Initiative. And honestly, I am so thankful to have the opportunity to even share my story with one person. So thank you for having me here today. Thank you for joining this edition of the Women's E-News Indigenous Women Speak Out series. I'm Dr. Lori Sokol, Executive Director of Women's E-News. To learn more, please visit us at womensenews.org 
and follow us at Woman Z News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please subscribe to this podcast.